But a portfolio of career is when you are switching from a traditional permanent role where you trade time um, for money and a salary with one employer. And then what a portfolio career is, uh, is, is when you sort of say, that's not for me any longer. And I now am looking to have multiple inputs of where I fund my lifestyle, so where I get my money from. And my visual for that is a, um, a, a funnel, which I'm, a, a, um, you know, I'm quite visual in how I think about it. So, and at the top of the funnel, I picture various buckets. So let's say there's four different buckets. A portfolio career can be represented by this because each of those buckets at the top, you fill up with opportunities. Renata Bernardi, and this is the Job Hunting Podcast, where I interview experts and professionals and discuss issues that are important for job hunters and those who are working to advance their careers. So make sure that you subscribe and follow, and let's dive right in. In 2020, and at the height of job losses and pandemic lockdowns, I interviewed my guest Jacinta Willen for the first time. At that time, my goal was to capture her expertise in entering work to understand the potential opportunities that professionals could consider as the pandemic unfolded and we had zero to no permanent roles advertised. But none of my interviews are a point in time only and I would encourage you to listen to that first episode. It's number 37 and there will be a link to it in this episode's show notes. To learn more about Jacinta's background and career story and hear her discuss the evolution of the gig economy, its opportunities and its challenges as well. I felt like it would be very repetitive for my long-term listeners who may have already listened to that episode number 37 if we went through some of those points again. So in this episode, we start by diving straight into the future of work and what could potentially be the future of your career if you choose to move towards the portfolio career style. Jacinta is an author, thought leader and a popular speaker in Australia on the concepts of entering executives, portfolio careers and future ways of working. She leads the Melbourne office of Watermark Search International, an executive search specialist firm recruiting permanent and interim managers as well as board members. Jacinta has over 25 years of experience starting and leading interim businesses in Hong Kong, New York and Australia. She advises corporates and governments on the executive entering marketplace and is a regular speaker on boards and businesses that are looking to understand the future of work for senior executives and adopt new ways to engage executive talent. In fact, for Jacinta, the future of work has well and truly arrived. It is the now of work and it is part and parcel with building a portfolio career. In her words, the paradigm has shifted in how we engage with work and both individuals and companies are questioning what it means for them. Jacinta and her colleague Caroline McAuliffe have co-authored a brand new book, The Rise of the Entering Executive, A Guide to Navigate Your Success. This book 
is out this month of April 2021, and it is a must-read for professionals who are keen to move now or in the future towards entering work. I have five copies to give away to listeners, and all you need to do is give this podcast five stars and write a review on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Send me a screenshot and also give me your postal address so that I can send you a brand new off-the-print copy of Jacinta's book. This is a first-in best dress promotion and I only have five copies, so please hurry. You don't want to miss out. And I will also make sure that this information about the promotion is included in the episode show notes with my email address, or you can also send me the photo and your postal address to, uh, to me via DM um, on any of my social media platforms. I'm sure that by now you have already found me on LinkedIn or Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Now let's listen to my conversation with Jacinta. Please sit back and enjoy. All right, so this is the second time we catch up on this podcast. So I refer people back to the first podcast to learn more about you and your background and what you do. We don't need to go through that all again. They can um, listen to, let's call it part one with Jacinta Whelan. (laughs) And let's focus on part two now. Um, We're recording this at the beginning of the second quarter of 2021. And uh, a lot of people are now seeing the pandemic as moving away from its sort of heavy crisis and organizations starting to crystallize again after sort of this melting turbulence that we had in 2020. What are you seeing with your clients and the assignments that are coming your way? Uh, what I am seeing is an optimism. I'm seeing a resilience, uh, which is really nice to see. I feel like um, COVID knocked everyone for six. Um, it was unplanned, clearly unforeseen, and um, it probably exposed quite a bit um, of sort of underlying issues for companies that were there. And so what I'm seeing is companies come into 2021 and hearing from them and sort of filtering this down from lots of conversations is that there's uh, there's a plan forward, but it's built in some resilience. So if we need to stop for a period, if there's a lockdown, whatever, that's now all sort of factored in. So there's this sort of, um, which, which is great, you know, to have resilience built into companies because we've never had to have it before. If I look at last year, there was a, there were sort of phases to the COVID. So there was a real triage phase right at the beginning. We wanted to get home quickly and you know, very quickly to see if we could, you know, work from home, set up the computers, all those sort of things. So there were certain needs um, and functional requirements that clients called us for um, in the beginning of the pandemic, which was a lot of sort of finance people to make sure they had the cash flow, HR people to make sure that they could get everyone working from home. And what's happened as we've swung into 2021 is companies now looking, sort of planning forward and needing help on more operating models or more redesigning, um, you know, their digital experience or their customer. So we're moving forward with the requirements of what people need. So um, that's that's been really positive to see. There's a sort of a a cautious optimism in the market. 
Yes. And do you um, have a feeling that with the vaccination rollout that there is even more of a, a certainty in sentiment in the market or has that hasn't really um, sort of show this as a trend for you. I asked this because I called a friend in Israel for a podcast interview a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, yeah, we've rolled out the vaccinations, but we haven't really thought things through yet. <laughs> we haven't had the time. You know, you have so much, you only have so much headspace, you know, and that, I guess that process for Israel was just such a big thing to roll it out so quickly that they were still kind of thinking things through and it and businesses didn't sort of catch up to what that meant in terms of opening up the economy and the country. Are you kind of thinking yeah, about I, what I, that means? I, I, what I'm sort of seeing is it feels like that the vaccinations are parallel to business because vaccinations, public health and its government, and it's sort of happening over here. And I feel that businesses are getting on with doing what they need to do for their business And there's an overlay of, you know, are we allowed to travel and some of that will happen internationally. But it's another one of the uncontrollables. So businesses are really just trying to focus on what they can control. This all will happen and in time, but but it, there's a slight disconnect still. It's not we've got the vaccination that, that changes everything for business. Um, I'm not getting a sense of that from clients at all. I don't hear them talk about it at all in relation to any executive hires or decisions they're making. Yeah. So this morning we had a, a masterclass that you delivered. Thank you for, for doing that for the group coaching session. And um, health was a big sector for you. And you said, you know, if you could, you would only, you know, work with that sector. It's such an important sector. What did you mean by that? Can you explain for the podcast listeners what's happening in the health sector? If anyone wants to transition into that sector, what would yeah. they have to do? So I... Um I think health is such a, um, a key driver of how the economy is going to continue to grow. So my comment today was if I had to just pick one sector of where I could be kept busy and where the market will be busy and where there'll be opportunities and where people will be spending money, I would pick health. Um, I don't just pick one sector, but, you know, for those reasons of where where's the activity going to be, where is a combination of both public and private money being thrown. Um, and, you know, then you've got all the overlays of, you know, an ageing population and all the sort of um, these social overlays that come into what makes the market busy. And for that reason, I think health is um, is only going to continue for, you know, when I say for the rest of my career, you know, for the foreseeable future of the next 10, 20 years, I think health is going to be a really interesting and vibrant and busy and active market. Um, so that's sort of my comment on why why I would why health. Yeah. Um, and then the second part of the question, just remind me. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, would, so how do you transition to health? Oh, you, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So, um, you know, my comment there is if, if you are thinking about changing careers, you should always be thinking about, You know, if I'm going to train or spend time and money um, reskilling myself, you want to know that where you're reskilling yourself, there's a bit of a future in that. So, um, for instance, I wouldn't be reskilling myself in, you know, for Kodak cameras because clearly, you know, cameras have moved and it's all digital now. So, um, 
It doesn't make it an, an easy transition, but I do think health are going to have to be open to bringing in people from other sectors because they just don't have the, the there's, there's not enough numbers for what they need to grow and they've got to start to think differently. So I think it's a lovely opportunity to cross sectors if it's what you want, you know, so there's got to be a purpose and a passion behind it. And um, if you're then sort of thinking where's where's a good investment in the future and how do I retrain myself, I'd absolutely consider health as one of those options. Okay, wonderful. Now, you are an expert in portfolio career and you've just finished writing a book with a colleague of yours. Um, let's define for the listeners what a portfolio career is. Give me the full spectrum and then tell me the sort of area that you mostly work with. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to my book here because we've got a whole lot of definitions and things, but let me not sort of do a... a um, a de dictionary definition, but a portfolio of career is when you are switching from a traditional permanent role where you trade time um, for money and a salary with one employer. And then what a portfolio career is, uh, is, is when you sort of say, that's not for me any longer. And I now am looking to have multiple inputs of where I fund my lifestyle, so where I get my money from. And my visual for that is a, um, a, a funnel, which I'm, a, um, you know, I'm quite visual in how I think about it. So, and at the top of the funnel, I picture various buckets. So let's say there's four different buckets. A portfolio career can be represented by this because each of those buckets at the top, you fill up with opportunities. So one of them might be something like if you're an executive um, and you're moving to a portfolio career, you might say, I'll do some board roles and some of them will be paid and some will be not paid. You might do some consultancy work in another bucket. You might have sort of non-work-related income. You might be a share trader. You might flip properties. You might um, have recently got an inheritance. There's so many different buckets that you could fill. Um, another important bucket um, that's part of a portfolio career is one that's not revenue generating. So while all this is ultimately looking to fill down to how do you, um, you know, have enough money, when people are in a portfolio career, often they're saying, what do I want my life to be made up? Some of it needs to be money, but other might be more lifestyle or purpose and passion projects. So there might be people that, that say, I'm happy to work a day a week in a paid role because I want to babysit my grandchildren or look after, um, you know, elder care. Um, maybe I want to volunteer at anything from Vinnie's to Probus to, you know, anywhere. So what they're saying, their portfolio doesn't always have to be revenue producing. Part of it usually is, but part of it's lifestyle driven. A long answer that's probably much longer than a little dictionary definition no, that's that's great. It it makes me think of a um an Uber driver that I spoke to once when I was in San Francisco visiting. And you know, it's the sort of thing that because we're in Australia, we are I feel like we have a very different understanding of how this can work. And this was a young man and and he picked me up the the hotel to take me to the airport and he was asking a lot of questions and wanted to talk and and I asked him, you know, so do you do Uber? every day and he said oh no nobody does uber every day and i'm like well in australia some of them do mm -hmm. he said oh no no i only do it tuesdays that's my uber day 
Um, and then I have a startup with a couple of friends and uh, we have an Airbnb together as well with a few other friends. And, and that was his life. So, you know, Uber, Uber was the day that he went to the gym and did his supermarket shopping as well. So it was the day that he got out of the house. <laughs> so he used that time in between picking up people to do a lot of things out of the house. If, and that was the only day he was out of the house. The other days he was deep into his startup mode. And then yeah, he yeah. had a room in the house where he would do his Airbnb. And I guess I'm giving that example because you can do, be a portfolio a professional at any stage and at every sort of income level. Would you agree? Exactly. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And um, the whole gig economy is a, a very broad definition. Um, and my personal work is at the executive level, but um, you know, more and more the younger generation, if you're just entering the workforce, you come in with a gig mindset. So, you know, your Uber driver example is, um, is how people coming out of uni now, that's, that's how they think. They think anything else is strange. Mm. Um, so the thought of having, um, you know, a, a startup happening, developing an app, um, you know, we're brewing beer with a couple of mates on the side and, um, you know, and I do a couple of days freelance writing or graphic design or whatever it is that's your thing, um, that sort of cobbling together, if you will, of different activities to keep you busy um, is actually, um, people are saying, is more fulfilling because, you know, they, they're only doing it if it... Um, they've got the option and they've got a couple of balls in the air so that if one falls, your whole life doesn't fall apart. So, you know, if all of a sudden your graphic design work, you know, drops off or there's not as much work in that space, then then you've got some other things that you're um, actively involved in and, and you're, you're already involved in the network of that. You don't have to start from scratch every time. So I think more and more people are going to have a portfolio of things and it will become the norm as opposed to a traditional one job and that's all you have. Yeah. Uh, who is it not for, Jacinta? Yeah. That's important too. A portfolio career is it, the people who do it well tell us that it's a stage of life decision. So there will be different stages of life for people where it's not right. So it's not that it's not right for any one type of person. I think there are stages in your life when it's um, it's easier to be a portfolio career and therefore easier not to be a portfolio career person at certain stages. And so if we sort of look at that and we sort of do a, a typical sort of career stage, when you start young and you start out, you probably don't have as many commitments or responsibilities. So you can you can have different income streams and different ways of working. There's, there's still an essence of um, a stage of life where known income and a known employer can help you. If when you're looking for things like you've got, uh, looking for it, get a mortgage still, there's, there's absolutely products that you can have if you don't have regular income. But we all know it's easier still to get a mortgage if you can show you've got regular work. Um, people sometimes tell us when they're in those early years of little kids and needing to have a really set routine that, you know, uh, a, a set job that fits around all of that where you can plan and work um, a schedule is easier. So that would suggest that um, portfolio mightn't be as helpful at that stage. 
Um, but then we sort of hear as people get to sort of a more mature stage and they tell us things like their kids have grown up and, you know, maybe the mortgage is all but paid for, then a portfolio kicks back in and is really, um, really attractive to people. So I think it's not that it's any one person it's not right for, it's what's your life circumstance look like at the moment or at that point in time. But from a um, future of work perspective, do you find that employers are moving more towards this unregulated space of entering work, contract work, um, and getting people to work for them without the need to provide leave or entitlements that you would normally see in full-time permanent roles? Because that's the feeling we get from the news. Yeah, I think there is, um, that's, that's one narrative that's out there. I would, um, I would sort of, we work with um, the government and Senate inquiries, et cetera, to make sure that there is regulation about the gig economy. And that's a, um, you know, the OECD countries are probably better placed to put a floor on um, supporting people. Um, so it's not that companies, there's, there's a supply and demand side here and a lot of the narrative suggests that it's the big bad companies that want this and they're the ones forcing people to do it. And I think that loses the, the part of the narrative that says this is a lot of people's choice. So it's the supply side of people who are saying this is how I actively choose to want to engage with work. And, and yes, you have to have regulation around all of that. Uh, regulation um, always follows innovation. So if the way we work changes, what you'll find is the way you work changes and the rules have to catch up a little bit behind you. Um, so without a doubt, we're at a stage in an evolution of this. That the rules probably do have to catch up a bit. But I think the intent um, of governments and of organisations is not to, um, it, it's not there to screw people over. It's that more and more companies are saying the model that works best for us is to have part of our workforces um, as permanent, traditional permanent, and that's your business as usual. So what we know has to happen, we'll have enough people for that. But the very nature of business is you've got to explore new things, do projects, there's things that happen outside business as usual. So more companies are saying the smartest approach is for that concertina where we need extra, why don't we bring in the right skill at the right time to deliver what we need. We still keep a core. So it's not as though, um, you know, permanent employment is, is gone forever. There'll absolutely be a time and a place for this. But what I think there's an acceptance to say people want this and companies benefit from it. And so that's created the market. Yeah. One of the uh, good things that we have done in the past on the podcast was interview um, these amazing experts in the recruitment sector in Australia, like Jeff Morgan and mm -hmm. Jeff Slade, and they've been operating in recruitment since the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, I think since the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, so the things that we've discussed with them in, in previous episodes is the fact that we used to rely a lot on employers to take care of our careers. And you ma you mentioned that regulation follows innovation. And mm -hmm. I, I have a feeling also that the way that we manage our careers will have to change with that innovation. Are you seeing that? Do you find that it's difficult to uh, for candidates to adapt to a new way of thinking about their careers now that um, this portfolio way of operating and the con contracts are changing? 
I don't see that people find it difficult. I think it's, um, I think once they know it, know, know about it, there's a self-interest piece here that there should be no one as interested in your own career as you. And so it's, you know, when you actually think about the concept that the employer's job is to keep training you and to keep developing you, it's, um, it's actually a funny concept to really think because it's no one's job to tell you what you need to do to keep your career grow, going. It's, it, it should be motivated by you because then it's going to be what you want and directed by you and, and push you in the direction of where you want to go. If someone tells you you need to go and do a, a coding course because that's what suits the company but it doesn't suit you, then it actually doesn't further your career. So I actually think it's a great thing that ownership of your career, ownership of your learning, ownership of your development sits back with you. And I think even when it was, you know, perceived to be in the company and the company trained you, the best people still would have driven where they want that training and they should have driven where they want that training. So I actually think the right place for it to sit, we've finally landed back where it should be. Um, and the, the people who get that will do well. There will be always people who would like someone else to, you know, hand feed them what they should be doing. Um, but I actually think, um, you know, that's actually a, quite a good differentiator between, you know, someone you want to employ and someone you don't want to employ. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your book, The Rise of uh, mm. the Entering Executive, because entering executive placement is a type of um, work that you can do uh, as a freelancer. Yeah. But it's, it, do you, can you describe what entering yeah. executive is? Yeah, so we, we started the conversation by talking about a portfolio of career and, mm-hmm. and one bucket that could have been filled up was um, was work doing interim executive level assignments is what I work at. But what it doesn't always have to be in my part of the world. It could be that um, you combine um, parts of your bucket. Uh, one of the buckets is um, what is your skill, what is your craft, and then doing bite-sized um, assignments or projects in that craft. So you line up with a, a company where you're, you're helping them deliver on a project um, that you've got an expertise in for a period in time. It's not forever. It's not an ongoing employment contract, but it could be anything from a week to six months to two years. You line up next to a company and say our values and our offering suit each other for a point in time. And it's often been referred to as the Hollywood model because Hollywood are some of the earliest adopters of getting the right people together to deliver on a project for a finite point in time. They come together, they make the movie, and then they disband. And so the the nature of an interim executive is someone who um, comes to a, a company for a point in time to deliver whatever is their expertise. Um, and that forms part of this bucket of offering to say, I can keep busy doing this, but I've probably also got other things I do. Um, and then that work for an interim executive, um, where do you find that work? It could either be through your own network or through a broker model such as what Watermark does. Um, but, you know, it, it very much you might, it, it grew up from a, um, a self-sustaining model. So what would have once happened was an executive finished an executive career and um, the traditional model was you either go and be a board member or go and play golf and retire. And then 
what happened was some people would sort of call back a friend and say, you're really good at that. Can we borrow you for your knowledge? And so that was sort of the earliest iterations of this. And so there's a lot of people that, that I talk to that say, oh, I've been doing this for ages, but I just didn't call it interim executive. Um, so it's, it's evolved and the evolution of it means that it goes from just a self-sustaining network of someone calling you because they remember you to you then sort of out there promoting what you do to a marketplace where there's brokers involved where, you know, and it's getting more and more maturity and um, I suppose um, acceptance. Yes. What I like about this, it, it gives uh, people with extensive experience in a specific area more than just a board position to consider. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know how people are experienced and then they think, oh, you know, I should start thinking about boards and I should start thinking about being an executive director. It's not for everyone, first of all, and there are not that many positions out there, but you can still, you know, keep yourself busy with mm -hmm. those sort of consulting, coaching, mentoring, and basically yeah. hands-on short-term opportunities without it sort of being full-on you know, a uh, 24-7 type of role that you had in the past. Would you agree? I couldn't agree. And, and I, what I pick up on there is that hands-on. So a key difference between boards, um, you know, that default position of, well, I'll just go on a board, um, and you, you're dead right, it's not for everyone, because a governance role is to advise and to oversee, whereas there's still a lot of executives, if you're in an interim role, you're still doing. And there's a, there's a key difference. I've had some people who do boards sort of, you know, miss the doing where they sort of say, I can see a problem, I can see the executive and I feel like just give it to me and I could solve this in, you know, give me a week and we could sort this out. But that's not the role of a board. Their role is to, you know, suggest and to advise and to, um, and some people like to combine the two because they're sitting at a governance level, but every now and then they step back down into the doing level. And there's some people who just like the doing and sort of saying, well, I don't really just want to sit or, or, or vice versa. There's some people who like the governance but don't like the doing. So I think it's nice that there's now more options um, for people. And what, what we like to think is that we've wrapped our arms around this brains trust of a senior Australian talent. And isn't it wonderful that we can still use it? And there's a, a model and a way to engage that talent that doesn't have to squeeze itself back into we need to offer them a permanent job because it's not what these people want, but we can access them, we can tap their experience, their wisdom, and 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 we, you know, they're happy and we're happy. Yeah. It feels like a nice marketplace to have developed. Yeah. A big chunk of uh, your book are a few chapters that you've you and Carol dedicated to uh, a framework that you've developed. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to go into too much detail because I want people to go and buy the book, but can you explain, sort of give us a helicopter view about the, the framework that you came up with? Yeah, we call it the three E's. But, and, and so what we've done is we've broken being an interim executive into what we call the environment, the executive and the experience. And, There's a lot to this and a lot to unpack. So the reason we wanted to sort of put it into sort of, um, again, I'll use the analogy of buckets because um, the environment talks about why this is even a thing, some of the macro reasons, some of the research, some of the data, 
and it gives it context. So what's the environment that's set up, um, uh, set up that this is now a way of working? And then you've got the executive, which, which really drills down into what type of people do this, why do they want to do it, um, you know, what type of backgrounds do they come from, what do they need to consider, um, what, you know, is this right for me? So there's a whole lot that unpacks you as the individual. So we've looked at why it's even out there and why should I want to do it? And then the experience E, the third E, is really if I've now decided this is right for me and I've explored what it is, what does it really mean? What does it look like once it starts to get into the sort of the nitty-gritty of it? What, what, um, how often would I be busy? What rate would I be paid? What type of companies want this? You know, what would my day-to-day look like? So we've really tried to sort of break it up so that you can absorb um, all of the data that, that sits underneath each of those themes into a context that, um, that's got a frame around it really because there might be parts of that where you say, I actually just want to understand why. And so I can just read that bit. Um, or you might sort of say, I know this is for me. So let me just go straight to the experience and understand some of the, you know, break the myths. We've got a few <clears throat> sort of tools and worksheets within the book where you can start to sort of, you know, take your own experience and, and test yourself on some of the questions we've got to see if it is right for you. So that's really why we tried to sort of put a framework over the top. Excellent. Before we wrap up, are there any myths surrounding entering work or uh, misconceptions that you would like to address? I mean, might as well do it now. <laughs> well, they've got to read the book, Renata, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, um, there's a section in the book called Myth Busting because, um, you know, some of the some of the myths have evolved or sort of been probably answered over time, but they might still be out there. So there's, you know, some people will say to us, you know, why do people do this? Can't they get a permanent job? You know, so there's a, an assumption that this is a, a, a poor choice or, a, you know, a poor man's choice type thing or a second choice. Um, and, and our counter to that would be when this is right for people, it's their plan A, you know, and often it reflects more on that individual asking us the question of why can't they get a permanent job because they can't contextualise for themselves that they would ever work this way. So a lot of the myths that we sort of we work through really are just pushing back of where the people themselves are. Another myth, um, you know, might be, you know, you couldn't hire an interim into some of these really important jobs. Um, you know, how do you have someone who can day one pick up a large com- complex organisation? And, you know, we would counter that by this is, this is what people do time and time again. They come in, they thrive in an environment where they, it's complex. Um, you know, you, you, you think on your feet, you solve problems in real time because, of course, people can do something new because even if you're in a permanent job, you get thrown things that are new. Yeah. So, um, you know, why would, it, why would people do it um, is probably the biggest myth that I'd like to unpack. Yeah. Have you got a, have you got a myth? What do, what do you hear about it? Um, no, I think that that's the myth that I've encountered because I don't know if the listeners know, I have um, sort of wet my toes into entering work mm. with Watermark and went through a few interviews and I have felt that uh, sometimes even the employers were curious to know as to why. Why was I there as a candidate for an entering role, especially because 
um, they probably considered me fairly young to be opting into entering. And mm -hmm. I know that you also thought I was fairly young when we first met. But people have different reasons why they opt into entering and for me flexibility in my work life was more important than anything because I have family overseas I would love to um, see them I know that that plan didn't pan out the way I wanted because we're in lockdown mode in Australia but ideally for me the more flexibility I have the better so entering work but now you know coaching consulting and doing what I do suits me way more than having a full-time permanent role um, so that I can work from anywhere go visit my family and come back and uh, so you you don't really should judge a book by its cover yeah. you should just accept that that person really does want to do entering and um yeah and um make sure said, you give them the time of the day so that yeah. they can present a good case it's um it's it, it overridingly it's usually a stage of life and i think people have various risk profiles and everyone is so different that you can't even give a common scenario but themes that come through is when this suits people they tell us things like um you know they're thinking differently about how they engage with work maybe some of the big commitments of life of school fees and mortgages are under control or maybe they're not the only breadwinner you know in their family that's covering that so there's so many the beauty of it is that there's no rules so you can write your own rules and there's a much more of an acceptance that you don't have to just have a permanent job. I think that was sort of, that was the only option. So any option other than that was, um, I don't know, maybe considered irresponsible or what's wrong with them or all these sort of myths. Whereas, you know, when you unpack it, most people would love to have options. And they're like, how do I get a piece of that? Um, and, and they have to weigh up their own risk profile of could they do it um, and is it right for them? So it's... Um, I find interim is something that you've got to run towards interim rather than run away from something else. So just because you're not happy in a permanent job doesn't make interim easy. You know, this has got to be something that's been driven on a couple of factors in your life um, and you are, it's, it's your plan A mm. because other than that, then it is just filling in because you're not happy somewhere else. I agree. Not working. Yeah. I think another myth that I'd like to bust is, you know, when I have a, a client that comes to me and they're happy with either entering or permanent, I make them choose. Yeah. Frankly, you just don't have the breath to actually tackle both strategically enough. Yeah. And uh, it is just as hard to tackle one than the other. And, and you can't to, to have a, a crisp pitch for a headhunter or a recruiter or hiring manager um, is actually more important than to say I'm open to any and every opportunity out there. So um, if your stage of life means that you still need or want a permanent role, a full-time role, whatever, then that's what you need to um, run towards rather yeah. than saying I want everything. And um, the fact that entering uh, is highly reliant on you if you want to keep yourself busy, mm. you can't just leave your resume with somebody like yourself mm. and sit and wait for the phone to ring. I mean, you could do that um, if you don't really need a job. But if you yeah. want to keep yourself busy, then you have to activate and engage and warm your connections and network to get opportunities and make that portfolio as yeah. rich as it can be. 
because chances are, you know, you're not going to call them the next day. (laughs) Right. Um, uh, Yeah, that's right. You know, no one's as interested in you being busy as you. And, um, you know, I I like that you sort of make people choose because when I hear those words, I'm open to either. What it usually means is I really want a perm job, but I'm finding that hard. Um, And so, but I've got to convince you, Jacinta, that I'll do a bit of both because clearly that's what you do is interim. And so, you know, I, like you, push back and say, you know, help me understand your motivation for doing this, which is a big part of the book, you know, that the executive part, what's your motivation? Because if, if you come at this from the right place, then you've got a really good chance to be successful. Yeah. But if you think this might solve other things that aren't working for you, either you don't like politics in your business or, you, you know, being let go and you didn't see it coming, a whole lot of things that, um, you need to work through. There's no magic bullet for it, and, and a quick fix interim actually doesn't work. Right. It's hard work. Um, it's got to be a choice, and um, and it can be absolutely fulfilling if it's right for you. Yeah. So when I hear I'll do either, what I really hear is I'd like a perm job, but this might have to do me for now. Absolutely. And, you know, well, I am a coach. So if people are working with me, my job is to make it easier for them. So if they find it hard to find a permanent role, it's my, it's part of my job to help them make it easier. So there's no point in them pursuing entering as a plan B. Let's just work on plan A and do a really damn good job at that. Um, So yeah, so that's why we choose but there are quite a few that are opting and you know we we're doing the the group coaching now and the first week is a very big self-reflection week Mm -hmm. and one of the um the participants came back and said oh gosh I just finished doing your homework and realized that I need to open a business (laughs) so well it doesn't mean that they're going to open the business right away but it means that career planning for this person uh, requires them to maybe find a couple of jobs but move towards opening a business within the next five years eight years yep. Yep. you don't have to do go from a to b right now you want to validate that business idea you want to make sure you have yeah. a good runway for it you want to and the same thing for entering work if that's part of your future planning you start warming up your leads and pre- getting ready for it now even if that's five years down the track. Would you agree? Can't agree more. Yeah, you know, it's um, what is your product going to be? What, you know, make sure you're activating your networks and not thinking, you're a bit like when you go for a board, people, executives who finish an executive career and say, and now I'll start looking for a board or now I'll start looking for a You should have been doing that work back here. Um, you know, maybe got on one board there because the journey to boards is hard as well. So, there's absolutely things that you can be doing. The beauty of that is they actually serve you in the moment as well. So if you're activating your networks and keeping them strong because you think you want them in the future, it's also helping you in the current. So, you know, if you're doing the right things right here in the time, then you'll be much better set up for the future, whatever that needs to look like, your own business or interim or boards or whatever it is. Excellent. Well, 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 I think we've, Done a great job today. Would yeah. you agree? Yeah. Absolutely. Where can people find your book? They can find it at our website, uh, Um, This is a copy of the cover 
Well, I will have a copy of the cover in the blog because this is going to be um, an audio-only podcast. I will have the link in the episode show notes for everybody to find it quickly. And we will have some sort of uh, promotion for the listeners so that they can get a copy, you know, if they do something special for us. So I'll make sure that we add all of that to the introduction before. You can, and I'm really happy for your um, people on your podcast, Renata, I'll send you through once it's all launched a bit of a, a discount as well so oh, that, um, excellent yeah let's do that all, all, right. Partnership. Yeah. <laughs> all right thank you so much Jacinta it's been a pleasure once again to have you on board thank you Renata see you later bye bye It's always a great pleasure to chat to Jacinta and I always come back from those chats with new ideas to present to my clients and I find her incredibly knowledgeable and passionate about entering work as you can tell from the conversation you've just listened to. Now don't forget about the five copies of her book that I have to give away to you. And you can please give us five stars and write a review on iTunes or the Apple podcast. Those reviews and five stars, they give us, you know, so much uh, opportunity to reach out to new listeners. You have no idea how important it is for podcasts to have those reviews. So I would be very grateful for your help with that. And in return, um, the first five people that send me a screenshot of their new reviews will get a brand new copy of Jacinta's book that I will post directly to you. And you can send me a screenshot via email. I will have the email in my episode show notes so you can just find it there or you can DM me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter and I will send you a book. Bye for now. See you next time.